Hey, Mike. Hey, Colin. How's it going today? It's going well. It's uh, what is it? It's a Thursday. Thursday. Two Everybody days. likes Thursdays. Ten days till NAB. Is that true? Are you counting them down? Is that really true? Ten days? I think so. Maybe nine. Uh, Thursday. No. We start. We start setting up in nine. Right. No, we start setting up in eight. We're not going to start setting up Friday, are we? Yeah, we're going to be there. We're going to get there like midnight. Yeah, well. Oh, I mean, boy. We'll be doing something. We'll be driving there. That counts. Okay. It's all billable hours to me. <laughs> sure it is. Not, not billing you, I'm just saying. Someone's okay. getting billed. I don't know who, but somebody's getting the bill for this. It goes in on the job, and then I just hit randomly distribute. I see. That's good. So um, people started putting out press releases this week about what they're going to talk about at NAB. There's always this sort of split between people who pre-release about two weeks out and then people who wait till the show, and then there will be press releases all during the show as things actually get announced. Right. So... This was the first round, and then it'll be pretty quiet for a bit here. And then uh, during the actual show, we'll hear about the super secret things. Right. So it seems like all the hardware people... So it seems like all the camera people pre-announce nowadays. Well, all the capture card people don't. The like cam- Magic and AJ and Matrox will all announce at the show. Right. The camera people who don't pre-announce are the people who have the secret things like uh, the... There's a bunch of different sort of cinema cameras that are going to be announced at the show that haven't been revealed, that are in the sort of totally raw um, category. You know. Wait, the, wait. What do you mean? You you're talking from like Sony and Canon and them? No, no, from smaller manufacturers or okay. from yeah, yeah. Right. So they're going to show up with their 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 CNC printed aluminum. Yeah. Yeah. And no, plan, and no plans. So basically, there'll be a bunch of Kickstarters there, and then there'll be real cameras, which we've already heard about. Right. Okay. I wonder if DigiBolex will have a booth. Yeah, probably not. They'll use all their Kickstarter money to buy a booth at NAB. It's going to be just about as useful. I mean, <laughs> might as, I mean, if you're, if you're going to try to copy red, you might as well try to copy red. Yeah, pretty much. So... I guess we didn't really talk about DigiBolex. Maybe we did. No, I don't think we did. We don't need. We don't need to. We don't need to. Go check out uh, Pro Lost. That has the full rundown. Yeah. Um. Oh, helicopter. So um, we got a bunch of um, stories here. The three from cam- from Sony are all pretty interesting. Three different cameras from Sony. Um, I think all real models. A lot of times they'll announce. Um, sort of prototypes or concept cameras, but I think all of these are things that will be shipping relatively soon. I mean, if nothing else, they've given them product numbers in their lines. Right. So <laughs> they're going to have to ship something there in right. that spot eventually. Um, so the first thing in the line is the Sony NX30, which is a really small sort of handycam style um, that is interesting in that it's got a nice sensor in it from their, their higher-end um, their Exmor line, which is what you see in like the NX cams and uh, EX, XT cam EX line. But uh, I thought it was interesting because it's got a projector built in, and I'm kind of curious what you think of cameras with built-in projectors. 
I mean, I guess it makes a lot of sense for home users. Yeah, but on a cam, I mean, why would you have XLR inputs and things on a camera for home users? Yeah, so I'm just, I haven't looked at this one. I'm just cruising your link right now. So it's, okay, so it's a, it's basically in the same size as like the TM700, right? I think it's bigger than a TM700. Well, I mean, once you add all this junk, yeah. it looks like it's bigger. But, but it's, but, it's you, know. you know, palm quarter size. Palm quarter sized. Shoots to AVC HD. It has XLR ins and like, looks like, you know, like, rideable volumes and stuff. And then it um, has a projector for when you, what do you, what do you need that for? Well, uh, yeah, exactly. It's like, again, yeah, I could see it if it was a home camera because you want to, like, show everyone what you shot that day at the ballpark. But this is obviously targeted for production. And so I'm really not sure, and especially considering there's not like a good way to sort of print back to AVCHD. So it's not like you would finish your product and then use your camera's projector to show it to people. Yeah, I mean screening dailies, but who does that? Right. Yeah, this is a really, this is a strange idea. Yeah, I mean it's a great, you know, it's twenty five hundred dollars, which is a, a very reasonable price for a camera in this range, a sort of professional quality. XLR input palm quarter kind of camera, but I would much rather have it, you know, be a little smaller, weigh a little less, and maybe cost a little less without the projector, I think. Yeah. And it's sort of surprising, you know, other people have done cameras with projectors, but it's always as part of a wider product line where you get the base model or you get the model with the projector. This seems strange. Well, I mean, Sony is not lacking for fragmentation, so it's right. not like they haven't covered the market. I don't think they need another, another camera. I suppose. But... But I still, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't get it. So it projects. It'll make a hundred inch image at 16 feet. Right. No idea what the lumens would be, but generally these small projectors are very, very dim. So it's a total yeah. dark, dark room sort of experience. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not buying it. <laughs> Maybe uh, they want to prove the technology for some other products or, you know. Who knows? But yeah, I thought it was a little strange. Um, it'll be interesting to check it out of the show. Um, you know, see exactly if you can get a sense of how much mass these are the projectors really adding. I just I haven't seen a projector less than sort of deck of cards sized. So right. Um, so they're just adding that. You just have to lug that around all the time. Right. For very little benefit. Right. Oh well. We don't run the company. Yeah. Yet. Keep buying those clip wrap licenses. We're saving up. Yeah. We got our war chest. <laughs> um, the next camera from Sony, in and I've ranked these in order of interest to me, uh, is this the NEX FS700. Which Wait. Is, no, no, you're doing this in the opposite. You're doing this in the wrong order. You got to go. We got to go up market. Well, but. I'm less interested. I, I really... Uh, fine. No, 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 we'll do it. The NX and the FS700. Is the big brother to the FS100, which is a camera I think we both kind of like. Um, right. It's a uh, NEX cam with a pretty big sensor, detachable lenses, um, you know, very nice images. Um, and what the 700 does is sort of 
takes all of those magical things that indie filmmakers wish for in cameras and throws them all in. Um, so you get all kinds of slow motion modes, and then with a promised firmware update, you're going to get raw sensor dump out 3G HDSDI, which will go into then Sony's... Um, I don't know if it would be their SR1 or their SR4 recorder, maybe a new recorder, to record um, raw 4K. Right. So why are you not interested in this one? I guess, I mean, the 4K to me it seems like a gimmick because it's, you know, again, it's Bayard 4K, which we, we don't need to have that argument again, but um, I, I think the camera will shoot very, very nice 1080p and sort of reasonably okay 4K, and I... I guess, you know, I don't see a lot of workflows where the latter is beneficial. Um, and, I, you know, anytime Sony promises future firmware updates to enable features, you never know how far those are going to slip. Um, or how much they're going to cost. Right. <laughs> and then the slow motion... Although they have been getting better. I mean, the the F3, they basically started giving them all away now, right? Yeah, yeah. well, they, they they killed the F3 and re-released it as with a slight new product line, like F3R or something, but where that's all rolled in now to the product. So do do existing users, they get the upgrade? Um, I don't know. I'm sure if you talk to your Sony rep, they'll hook you up. I'm sure. Because that was not out for very long. No. And then the slow motion stuff is in in burst and so you can shoot right. high speed for a few seconds but you can't actually like roll at 120 frames a second or 240 frames a second for the full size of your card which is sort of fine in some cases but less useful in others and again it makes it feel like more of a just sort of gimmick like hey look we can do this we can clock the sensor really high but we can only run it for a little while before we overheat it so um you know you yeah as a gimmick so I, I don't know. I mean, again, it's a nice camera, and it's certainly it's always nice to see a line of sort of a family of cameras like this, so that you can have the FS seven hundred plus some B camera FS one hundreds, and sort of have similar ergonomics and similar lenses and things across them. Like that's nice to right. see that range built out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just didn't really excite me. And then the price, um, I've seen nine thousand. I've seen ten thousand, somewhere in that range. So I've heard it. Yeah, I, everything I've seen says under ten thousand, right? Which is nine 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 five. But I've yeah. seen some that say street more like nine. So we'll see. Yeah, I'm sure street will be lower. Um. So, but yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. Um, and you know, I'm sure it will take very nice images, which is obviously the most important part of any camera. Um, so just yeah, so that so we're clear that the sensor is a, uh, I guess it's not actually a Bayard sensor because I think it's no, I guess it is because it's pretty sure it is four K. It's probably their like you know two green and then one red, one blue um, layout so that they can get true ten eighty p out of it. Right. But yeah. Cool. And then the sensor side, that's one of their Super 35s, right? Uh, yeah. So that's, yeah, the nicest thing is the glass you can stick on it. Right. Right, and so they've got they've got their Sony A mounts, and then they've got adapters for at least one or two other kinds of mounts so that you can put, I think, Nikon and Canon glass on it. you got to be able to do PL too, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'm so. sure. If not, somebody will make one. Yeah. 
So it is just, yeah, it'll be nice, especially if you've already started to invest, because you know not a lot of people had the Sony A-mount or Alpha lenses because that isn't a super popular DSLR, but obviously with the FS100, people have been getting more interested in that line of glass. Um, and it's it's very nice glass for the money from from everything I've seen and, and heard. So um, really? obviously it's nice to be able to maximize that investment with some other cameras that actually take those lenses. Uh, because with those, you get, you know, with, with some of the other glass that you can stick on there, you don't get full camera control, which is often the case with these lens adapters and things. The camera can't adjust certain settings on the lens or whatever. With the, the Sony mount lenses, I think you get full camera control of everything, which is nice. Right, so, right. Um, yeah. And then the last one of Sony's announcements, and the one that I was most excited about, was the PMW100 in the XD Cam line. Um, and I'm going to be curious, hopefully take some time at their booth to sort out exactly how they're talking about branding for the XD Cam line now, because I, I haven't seen them calling this an XD Cam EX camera, but it is recording to the SD card media, um, or the, the XD Cam media. The S by right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but they're recording now in the XDCAM HD422 codec, which everyone's been sort of ever since that codec showed up and begging them to add to their solid state cameras because initially it was only available on the, the disk-based cameras. Um, right. And it's a really a very nice codec. It's very much in the old... Um, the old line like DVC Pro 50 was where they take their sort of nice 35 megabit HDV-like codec from XDCAM EX and sort of slap on a little bit more data, but it's similar. It's MPEG-2. It's, you know, long GOP and everything. But very nice. I mean, I the XDCAM, um, uh, what was it? The F, no. What are the product? The EX1. Um, yeah. That was one of my favorite cameras that, did, that shot some nice, very nice, yeah. and very nice codec to work with. You know, uh, it was you know thirty percent more data rate than HDV, and you really benefited from it. And just a really nice codec um, in terms of the way they implemented it, and just a very nice camera in terms of ergonomics. I thought some people didn't like it, but I really enjoyed shooting with it, and it felt robust and and you know just really nice, nicely put together. And so I'm hoping that this camera is going to be similar in. Um, in all those ways, um, and that the 422 is just an ad, added bonus. So, yeah, no, I think it. Um, I think it'll be good. So, yeah, so the biggest thing that they've done is they've gone from 420 at 35 megabit to 422 at 50, right? Right. Okay. Um, so that's. I mean, that's a good incremental improvement. Yeah, when it's a you know it's a proven codec that already has support in all the NLEs, which is always nice. So you know the day this camera ships, you'll be able to use it with all your different editors. Um, and you know I'm really happy that Sony is slowly moving away from the proprietary media. So they ship you know official adapters to use memory stick and SD cards and X. Or XQD cards, which is a sort of what is that? It's a new kind of SD card from the consortium. Oh. Um, anyways, so that you know, they they officially allow use of those cards, which is nice because it used to be very uh, iffy, and you could have compatibility issues and things. Um, and so, you know, it becomes a really attractive camera for a lot of workflows that aren't 
for whatever reason aren't appropriate for AVCHD um, or who want the 422, it should be nice. Yeah. So it seems like Sony's kind of standardizing around MPEG-2 um, and Panasonic is still a little scattershot, right? Because they've got the AVC Intra mm-hmm. and then they've got some MPEG-2 cameras too as well, right? Mm-hmm. Or are they all AVC Intra? They're, I think they're all, well, Panasonic's AVC Intra, they've still got DVC Pro HD cameras. And True. then they've got AVC HD as well. And yeah, Sony's AVC HD and MPEG-2. Yeah. And then, you know, HD cam. And yeah, those are different, yeah. But even HD cam is MPEG-2, correct? Um, I don't think so. I think internally it's it's like two to one MPEG-2. Huh. I thought they got... I might be wrong on that. It I might thought... be JPEG-2000. Yeah, I thought it was... It was one or the other. Uh, I wonder if we're ever going to come up. I'm, I mean, I, I kind of feel like we might be done with production codecs. Yeah, it's just a uh, straight DCT single intro yeah. frame. 311. Okay. So, JPEG. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, H264 is a really good codec. There's really. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't see, you know, all of the work from here on out is on more complex interframe codecs, which I don't see ever taking off in production. Yeah. yeah. You know, so H.265 is going to come someday. That's probably, I don't even see like you're going to adopt it, you know, for AVC type uses, mm-hmm. AVC HD. And so I think we're we're done, right? I don't know. I mean, for good, forever. <laughs> Close the patent office. Um, <laughs> I think. I mean, I I was kind of hoping. Well, that's true. We will have well, to come up with something before all those patents expire. Yeah. I I was kind of hoping AVC Intro would take off and become the sort of prosumer and, and professional standard uh, because I think it's a really nice balance of you know great technology, but you know ease of editing and everything and reasonable data rates right but it just hasn't really seemed to find favor i think because you know for a lot of workflows avchd is fine and you know everyone else is sort of buying into one particular universe so they don't really care what the codec is right you know if you're a news stadium and you're or a news a news uh station and you've bought into the xd cam world it doesn't really matter what's going on internally because all your tools are sort of talking the same language right so i don't know um yeah yeah, and then of course on the higher end side as we move past 1080p uh we're still all over the map there and i don't know if we'll ever see sort of interframe codecs move up like that or if you know because we're fighting this war we've got data rates and we've got storage medium and we've Mm -hmm. got you know raw versus deep aired and compressed and everything and it's not clear exactly, sort of, if you think of your, what are those charts called where you can sort of pull anything and it pulls other things in and whatever. Um, you know, like that's the, a chart? The diamond chart where you like. Uh, I don't know what these are called. Fixed yeah, with the two axis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've got fixed yeah. width or fixed line lengths so you can slide and whatever. Anyways, so you sort of can play with all those values and decide whether it makes sense to have a compressed codec or whether it makes sense to just up your data rates. And I'm not really sure 
um, you know, as, as 4K really comes online in the sort of prosumer-consumer space, uh, what will be the, the path that's taken there? Yeah. And computing power, of course. I mean, you know, shooting raw and doing everything on the computer becomes more practical as each year goes by. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe someone will come up with some really smart way to deal with raw, compressed raw in a lossless fashion, you know, some... There's got to be interesting things you can do there. I don't... I mean, yeah, I don't... I mean, Red's doing their wavelet stuff. Yeah. Um, Which just seems like... I don't know, wavelet to me seems like... It's like fuel cells, you know? Like... We invented it in the 70s, and we thought it was going to give us jetpacks, and it's never gone anywhere. Right. Um, it's like, I don't know, it just, it doesn't seem to buy, I mean, it's just not pragmatic enough. Well, I mean, the, to yeah, DCT. the problem with wavelets are, because it's inherently based on repetition, you know, to decode a wavelet, you sort of decode the wavelet over and over again to get back to the original or to compress a, an original back down to, uh, you know, to degrade a wavelet. Um, and so as long as we keep scaling up the sort of resolution of the stuff we're compressing with wavelets, it never gets any faster. Right. Um, and so that's, I think, where wavelets have been kind of stuck is they're, you know, you can make really fast sort of, 640 by 480 static image wavelets but doing them at 4k you still are sort of doing that loop x number of times you know wait but that's there's no there's no technological difference between wavelet and dct in that respect no from there, my is. Understanding. there is because you're always doing them on small you're always compressing in macro blocks you right. never compress the full image right 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 but with a wavelet you have to do the same process multiple times on each macro block. Right. And so... But in the same way DC... I mean, doubling the size of an image in MPEG-2 is is the same ratio of complexity gained. You know what I mean? Like, any time you double the size of an image, you have four times as much work to do. Whether it be Wavelet or right. MPEG-2. You just start out being slower to begin with Wavelet. Right. I think the, I mean, the big problem with Wavelet is they, you know, it's like the goal with it was that it, you could be lossless. And it just doesn't matter. And it matters less the more, the larger your image gets. Right. You know, because who cares if you accurately represent the image if there's 14 billion pixels flying past you? Like, you don't care if there's some macro, you know. Right. Macro blocks are so tiny at that point. Like, just get them close you know even if every macro block is one color only it's still in you know right no it's I think, half it's half of an hd image in resolution so i think wavelet's far more interesting in in some degree the way red uses it which is that you may have a 4k thing but you only de decompress it to 2k or 1k and wavelets are designed for that so you actually just sort of stop the decompression process once you've decoded 1k worth of the frame yeah no that's true and the same goes for in theory in theory streaming wavelets over the internet that you could sort of a client could ask for the 1k version or ask for the 4k version and the server would just serve the right bytes without actually having to maintain separate copies and things like that Right, which again seems great, pie in the sky stuff, but 
you know, you don't really want to just do that dumb of a downsampling because then you end up with all the moray effects. Right. And so, and again, of course, in reality, like computers get faster, bandwidth increases, like, and you know, what storage increases. So why do you want your server to be doing all that work of spitting out different versions on the fly when you could just store extra copies? <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and I think, yeah. So I'm officially declaring Wavelet as a dead end. Dead? Okay. DTM. It's dead, it's dead to me. Okay. I will uh, let, let everybody know. Let the guys working on their doctorates know. Well, no, they can keep doing it. It's, it's interesting stuff, but... Okay. As long as you don't want a job in the industry, keep working on it. <laughs> well, there are certain places. Yeah. I don't know. What else? So what, what's the... I don't know. There's not a lot to talk about. So what's the next technology, then? Let's just keep going on this. The next technology stuff. for... Uh, compression or for yeah like what do we need i, I mean i don't like what do what do we need that the two codecs we have aren't solving i mean there are sort of incremental things i guess you know you can go two directions with this one is do we need to start talking about codecs that capture you know spatial data like you know 3d data more than just stereoscopic but i mean that are actually capturing voxel data or you know depth right. data okay um, that'll give you that's the, a good one and there are people who have hacked that onto existing things but i think that you know codecs could be much smarter and really take into account um depth data right um and any any manner of other sort of out of band data for lack of a better term whether mm -hmm. it's also capturing um you know ir or you know, anything else you want to see in the range or capturing, who knows? Yeah. I mean, I can't think of a lot of things you want on production. Um, you know, there definitely, there's a lot of stuff that could be done on the uh, DRM side. Right. Um, but I don't know, I mean... No one's really designed a codec with DRM in mind. That could be interesting. Um, I don't know if there's something you could do encryption, you know, if you combined encryption with compression. Because one of the problems with encryption is that it makes compression impossible. Um, because, you know, the whole point of encryption is to try to make your data random. Well, but you just compress before you encrypt. Right. Um, but I don't know. I, I just, I'm curious. There might, there might be something interesting to do there with doing that as a single pass. Yeah. Although, again, you know, with DRM, and maybe this is a conversation to have in a separate podcast sometime, I kind of feel like over the last 18 months, 24 months, we've all sort of just stopped caring. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's, that's fine, fine. Right? I mean... We've sort of reached a balance where it's not obnoxious enough, and we've learned to live within the boundaries and you know circumvent them as needed. That yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. And then the other big thing I could see becoming interesting is um, most codecs still, well, all codecs that are out right now still treat 
video as a 2D image plus extra data. Right. So they do, and I'm not talking about, you know, I'm, in this case, I'm not talking about 3D like, you know, James Cameron presents. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm talking about the third D as in time. You know, I wonder if you could start doing things with, instead of doing your, you know, like, could you just take an 8 by 8 by 8 frame 3D macro block and do a 3D DCT on it? Hmm. Is that is that possible? Would it make sense to do that? I think it might. I don't know. I'm not sure how that would work. You know, like, I mean, what, happens, t- what happens if you start thinking of your wavelets as traveling down a single pixel down through time? Right. Because yeah. for the most part, pixels don't change, in which case you, you know, it's not a motion estimation at that point. It's just like a meh. Yeah. Actually, I wonder that'd be interesting to mock up in uh, Mathematica or something because I guess there's not an inherent conflict there. Like my initial reaction is, well, DCTs are all about mapping spatial data to temporal data. So what happens when you map temporal data and spatial data into temporal data? But I guess, well, it's not really temporal data once you do that. Once you stack them. Right. And I guess as long as you, yeah. And I mean, it, you know, if you have something like a moving pattern, you can kind of encode that in a DCT instead of in a... Right. Because the thing moves over through time. Right. So I don't know. That was one of the things I've been thinking about lately. I wonder if that would be possible. Yeah. I'll bet you it's patented already. I would bet. Damn but it. yeah, that'd be interesting to look at. Um we should get into codex. Yeah, yeah. Um, another thing, I guess, and this is a little less pie in the sky, um, is figuring out better ways of dealing with dynamic range than our existing model, which is black is zero and white is uh, some value, either 256 or 1024 or whatever. Um, there there got, got to be better ways to be encoding some of that data as we get better sensors or better ways of building sensors with multiple photosites um, with different mm. exposure levels and things. Um, to, because obviously capturing wide dynamic range, and I don't mean HDR in the um, you know trippy deviant art way, but I mean you know just capturing more natural images is definitely an area where cameras can still go a long ways towards improving. Um, but having codecs that can better deal with this wider sample range would make sense. Sorry, I'm just I'm just caught up on H D V R high di- high deviant art range. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everything's neon. Um but I mean cuz really like it's it's sort of silly to increase our our sampling rates. I don't know. It's but I mean, what would you do other than I mean apply a log function to it or something? Right. But I mean, all you can do is set. I mean, basically, but, I mean, what's happening at this point is we're getting back. I mean, one thing that should happen is it should just be included in the damn file. Yeah. Like, why can't why can't anyone just put the damn LUT in ANC data and send it down STI so you can just get the image back later? Right. Like that, the fact that we're still passing LUTs around out of band seems just insane to me. Right. Since 
relatively small. But why can't we do some sort of sort of um, I don't know more range based dynamic or, you know spatially based dynamic range encoding so that we're encoding sort of eight bit log or linear or whatever, but then each macro block has a sort of transform applied to it as well. So oh, that, so you tag like you tag each macro block as highlights mids or right. That's actually interesting. That's really interesting. So, so it takes two bits per macro block, and then you can have three separate LUTs. Right. Huh. Yeah. We should start making codecs. Yeah. <laughs> or at least filing patents for codecs and then suing people. Yeah, Divergent that's, that's Labs. That's yeah. our new Skunk Orcs project yeah. that we've just announced publicly. Someone call, uh, what's his face, Nathan. Nathan Morvold? Yeah. About what? Isn't he the one who runs the, the patent troll yeah. company? Yeah. But why would we want to tell Because we're going to have him help us troll patents. Oh, okay. You know, I we're see. selling I got you. I'm following you. you know. So, yeah, Codex. Woo, Codex. Um. Yeah, those seem interesting. Yeah. What else? I don't know. Well, maybe this actually feeds into one of the other things I wanted to touch on, which is that um, Phantom announced a set of much less expensive high-speed cameras because I think high speed's another area where you can do things with codecs that you can't get away with necessarily in um, normal speed in terms of how you deal with temporal data. Because obviously in high speed you're dealing with even less change from frame to frame if True. you're shooting you know a thousand or a hundred thousand frames a second um, and as that increasingly I mean even even the move from 30p to 60p or 60i to 60p where we've doubled the amount of um, well, I guess we've doubled the spatial data and the same amount of temporal data but in any case uh, you know it seems like there could be different ways of thinking of codecs in those cases and especially when we go from 60p to 120p I think if you stopped and really optimized the codecs you could actually increase the way you're using your bits based on sort of the expected yeah, amount of change between frames yeah that is true uh, but Phantom announced the Miro M series, which is a new line from them of 1080p cameras, really more designed. You know, the reality is that Phantom, Phantom's been around for quite a while, I think, um, but, you know, really made their mark in scientific imaging, which is where high-speed cameras have traditionally been used. But in the last five years, maybe have really been adopted in uh, more traditional filmmaking, both because yeah. there's been a lot of demand for high-speed video, but also Phantom has created cameras with more you know, film video-like feature sets, whereas in the old days it was like a block with a massive heatsink attached and an Ethernet cable going out to a laptop. They've started building more camera-like cameras. Right. Um, and this is definitely a, a major step in that direction, a camera with HDSDI out and recording to either, you know, internal storage or external storage. And um, most of the cameras are rental only, but the pricing will be much more reasonable and you can still do um, somewhere in the neighborhood of just under 1,000 frames a second um, at 1080p or quite a bit higher at, at 720p. Yeah. Yeah, it's a neat-looking camera. I haven't seen so Jim Goodoldick. I think that's how you say his name. Jim G. Filmbot on Twitter. Um, he has been playing with one, yeah, and he seems to really like it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, traditionally, the the knock against 
the phantom cameras, and this makes sense, is that they're not particularly um, light sensitive, you know, because when you shoot high speed, you need to throw a lot of light on your subject anyways, but it's, you know, just the reality of clocking these sensors really high. Right. Um, and so you tend to get fairly noisy images um, at sort of higher ISOs. And I gather this one is quite a bit better than some of their others in that space. Yeah, I'm not sure how it... I mean, it's a 1,000 ISO, which is... Pretty pretty decent. Yeah, it's really right. high, but it's not outrageous. Right. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to check one of these out and, and just get a sense of how the feel is. And um, Again, it's probably not the sort of thing that would be a primary camera on any set. Um, but you know it's definitely a a nice camera for the Mythbusters or Top Gear or any of these shows that are increasingly incorporating a lot of high speed footage as the cost of high speed has come down Um, you know owning something like this rather than renting it occasionally obviously opens up new production you know when it's in the truck instead of on a shelf at a rental house you use it a lot more Right, um, and so having a camera that you don't have to have a dedicated operator for, which traditionally these high-speed cameras you had a separate high-speed operator, um, becomes you know give, just gives you more opportunities. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I don't know. So, I don't know. And the Phantom guys, you know, we've didn't we have a booth by them one year? No, that was someone else. Oh, well, Phantoms always seemed like a pretty like chill company. So, yeah. I don't know. They sort of stay out of a lot of the, the industry politics and indie politics and just build cool technology. Yeah. That is true. Um, so that's all the big stuff that's at NAB, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. So the other, we had two other things on our list here. Um, one was yours, which is like the C300. BBC. Yeah, this is just a really minor aside, but the BBC has approved the Canon C300 for use on BBC Productions. If you don't know, BBC maintains essentially a list of the things you're allowed to use when producing a show for them, including which codecs you can use and how you can deliver it and everything. And uh, so they've approved the C300, which is no great surprise. Um, But in doing that, BBC does a lot of like testing and things. And so it's interesting to just see what they think of it and uh, that they've given it the go ahead because everyone seems to like it quite a bit yeah it's yeah it looks like a nice camera um, I just wanted to give a shout out to one of our friends Marcelo Lewin who does uh, filmmaking webinars and he just they were just acquired by Moviola so I haven't talked to him yet we're gonna He's going to stop by the booth. And, but I'm curious to see what that's going to mean. I mean, Moviola has been doing a lot of instructional stuff hmm. in recent years. They don't, I think that's their main focus now. Right. I don't think they're still making flatbeds. No, flat, I mean, they don't make flatbeds. But <laughs> I think they're, yeah, I think they're like, us, you know, they're purely instructional type materials now. So it seems like a good fit. And I'll be curious to see what they're, they're going to do. Cool. Uh, do we have anything else? How long have we been going? Uh, we've been going 45 minutes, so we're, we're right okay. in there. Okay. So I think we're... Yeah. Going to wrap this up? Uh, through our chatters? Yeah. 
You got something? Um, I'll throw a link in. I've been reading an article, rereading an article that I think I vaguely recall reading in the 90s um, by Neil Stevenson called Mother Earth Motherboard, um, which is a very long article about Neil Stevenson tracking the installation of the world, what was at the time the world's longest undersea fiber optic cable. Um, but it's an interesting article. You know, obviously Neil's an amazing author, but it's also an interesting. It's 15 years on. It's interesting to sort of read about just the world back then because it was, you know, done as a news piece in the time. But it's still both interesting and I think an interesting look back. Interesting. So I've got two here. The first one is a product which uh, got mentioned on TechCrunch, which seems, I don't know, so there, here's this, there's this thing that if we're ever going to drive video down market, we have to solve, which is that people with home video cameras don't edit their footage ever, which means they have a lot of boring stuff, and then they never watch it. Right? We agree right. on that? Yes. That's true. You know, you go over to someone's house and they want to show you their, like, cruise video, which at least was cut by somebody. But even that's 45 minutes long, and you're like, oh, my God. Uh, and so there's this company that started called Highlight Hunter, which has a novel idea, which is it's, you know, they're they're pushing this towards people with like the GoPros and the, you know, people are doing their extreme sports and want to come up with a, a reel afterwards. And their idea is after you shoot something that was crazy, you know, because most of those cameras just run all day and you are stuck with this pile of footage that is very, very boring. Yeah. So their idea is anytime you like, you know, your friend does the crazy twirly loopy thing I think that's what they call it yeah yeah on their on their skateboards uh, you cover up the lens when in the shots over so you basically do a tail slate and then they have software that goes through and looks for all of those regions of darkness and then cuts a certain amount of time out before that and basically puts together a highlight reel for you of all those sections where you covered up a thing. I mean, obviously, you know, this is something which hopefully will quickly die the death of third party dude. Right. When GoPro adds a highlight button to the damn camera, which just sticks a metadata tag in their video. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was a good, you know, I thought it was an interesting solution to this problem. Like, just always run and then, you know, tag all the cool stuff. Yeah, I'm curious. Do you know any? I I didn't actually. I scanned the TechCrunch article, but I didn't want to burn that many brain cells. No, it's boring. Um, what? Why did the? Why? I mean, it talks about like a company that was founded to do this and all that, but it's a free app that you download from their site. Like, what is the model here? I don't know. Like, why is this one not something someone did in a weekend, and two, something that is free, and three? Um, I think because somebody wanted to start a company and came up with the product and didn't worry about the rest of it. Okay. And I think they also have some VC. So. Okay. That's the business model. Okay. That's cool. Spend um, somebody else's money on champagne. Yeah. 
Well, you know, maybe I'll, um, next time I do a track day, I'll give this a go. Uh, (laughs) You're going to lean out the window and cover it? (laughs) Well, I mean, yeah, that's a good point. Okay, next time I, how about next time I go rock climbing? Because I like to strap this on my helmet, strap my go coat on my helmet. Um, When I do an awesome, a total bomber something. That's right. Anyways, I'll give it a go and see how it works. And uh, at the end, does it put like a cool uh, indie rock soundtrack to it then automatically? We can hope. Yeah. We can hope. I would hope I so. I mean, because, you know, what we need to come up with eventually is some way to like find these shots automatically. Well, that, I mean, that's pretty much what iMovie 11 does, right? With their uh, trailers feature, which is they figure no. out which is a wide shot and which is a close up and which is a two shot. Right. And... But they don't find the interesting, you know, that's what we need to find is, sure. you know, like transcode it and look for, you know, you know, like what we need is an app that automatically transcodes all of the video and then does the like, what was that technology that Apple had where it, you can like shrink it down to an abstract? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so pull out the six sentences that contain the most content, stick yeah. all those in, or, you know, something like that, or the things that seem the most exclamatory right. if it's a, you know, sports thing or anything where people say, holy shit, man. Or that rocked, or you crushed it, whatever yeah. it may be. I mean, you as, know, as AI gets better, I mean, eventually. Oh, yeah, that seems like the holy grail, is you shoot too much video, and then the thing gives you back a 30-second right. reel with some stuff twixered, so it's nice and slow-mo, and you're done. Yeah, give, Someday. give Siri a couple years. Yeah. She'll take care of it. And so the other thing I had was on the artistic side. It's a it's up on Vimeo. It's a rear window as a time lapse done as a panorama. This is pretty cool. It's hard to explain. Yeah, but just watch it. Check it out. Um, it's a neat combination of both a crazy artistic thing with the actual like making of video built into it. It's fun. Yeah, very cool. Check it out. I'm glad I'm not the one who did it, but uh, <laughs> it's very yeah. cool. Yeah. All right. And so uh, we're probably not going to do next week. Uh, we could we could record one in the car. Driving across uh, Nevada. That would be as boring for them hour, as it would be for us. 12-hour <laughs> divergent opinions. Let's not do that. We're stopping in Reno, right? Um, I don't think we are. Um, okay, so it may, be two, lower, it may be two weeks. Three weeks. We'll be in South Lower 14010. Come visit us. We'll have, you'll be able to see the name of the company from the aisle. Pretty, we have an eight foot tall divergent media in blue running down the side of our booth, so it should be pretty easy to see. Yeah. Comment on uh, what you think of the G. Don't do that. Anyways, okay. We'll uh, see you all in Vegas. Look forward yeah, to stop it. stop by. Say hi, Say especially hello. if you listen to the podcast. Tell us you listen to the podcast. It would be fun to meet you. Yes. Okay, we'll talk to you later.